Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Titus, the first eight verses of chapter three. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you now meet us here as we have come and you have called us to yourself to meet with us here. Would you, would you take what is before us, these words, implant them on our hearts and in our souls that we might be different, that we might see things that are true and lovely and beautiful, and that we might respond to your love with our lives. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we're looking at Titus. We've been in this little book, uh, the letter from Paul to Titus, uh, for a while now, and we've come to chapter 3. And one of the things that we've seen, this letter, by the way, written about A.D. 62-64, uh, Crete was, is one of the largest um, Greek islands, so just off the coast of Greece. Uh, Paul has left Titus there that we read earlier in this short book to put things in order. That was uh, the banner that, that was flying over Titus as he read this letter. That's where it begins. Titus wants you to put some things in order, and that assumes that there are some things that are, well, out of order, or misaligned, or undervalued, or overvalued, perhaps. How do you move into a group of people and help them put things in order? And one of the things we learned, uh, you can look, go back and look at it if you uh, haven't, and that is that these Cretans were a wild bunch. They were a little rowdy, shall we say. And that's the group out of which this church has been formed. And, and some of that has come into the church, and some of it is outside the church, influencing the church. And so Paul to Titus says, I want you to put some things in order. And what we find as we've gone through now two chapters that Paul begins that, he's always connecting our response or the duty that goes with belonging to Christ to some very rich teaching or what he calls sound doctrine. 
He's always attaching that, but Paul's not alone in that. The Bible always does that everywhere, teaching how we live to the richest and most lovely truths. And you see that once again here. It's happened in chapter 2, in chapter 1, where he's talking about life in the church, in chapter 2, life in the family. And now he's, he's broadening that out to talk about life in the world, life in the secular world. How do, how do the lovely and beautiful truths of the gospel shape the way we live in the world? That's what he's doing here. So I wanted to look at this under three headings. One is, what are, what are our public lives to look like? What is the posture of our lives? Why we struggle to do so, the problem that comes with that, and then how do we get there, the solution? Uh, the posture, the problem, the solution the posture that he outlines in these first three verses, um, talk about our public life in the world, and he begins there on purpose. <laughs> he singles out a particular group of people, the civil authorities, and then he broadens that out pretty quickly to talk about all people. But he's calling us to think about our public lives in the world, and he uses three imperatives to help us to see that we as a church, that church there and this church here, are to exhibit evidences of gospel change in our public lives. That's what he's getting at as he opens chapter 3. We're to evidence the change that comes with the gospel in our public lives. Now, A public life in this public, in this world, in this culture, I don't need to tell you, is increasingly complex, difficult, and important to think about, to, to, to take what God's Word says and to think about how do we then live in this world. Uh, he doesn't give us, and the Bible doesn't give us, a complete manual about how to do that. We would like that. We would like a manual that answers all the questions that have already begun to flood your mind when we talk about this topic. Well, we don't get that, but we get as principles, and we get some clear direction, and we want to take what God has said and build that in and build around it. So this is what he wants us to hear. When it comes to civil authorities, the word that he chooses is, Submission. That we church, you church, that we church, to rule, when it comes to rulers and authorities, we are to be submissive and obedient. We could say law abiding is what obedient seems to be driving us to, obeying the laws of the land, obeying the laws of the community. What are those laws and how do we pay attention? How do we rearrange our life in light of uh, the laws of the land? Um, the word submission, which Paul talks about in other relationships and other places, but the word submission simply means to arrange yourself under, not to come alongside or, or not to find the, 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 uh, the voices in the culture that you agree with and said, I'll go there, but recognizing, according to Romans 13 and other places, that God is the one who puts those civil authorities in their position, and we are then to acknowledge that and to move into our role as citizens with that posture, arranging ourselves under. 
Ours is not the first pluralistic society that makes that quite a challenge. A number of you have been gathering for a couple of weeks, a few weeks now in this room in the Sunday school to talk about these very issues. This is broader than any one sermon today. It's broader than a six-week series. It would require more time than we have to give to this. But here's where Paul starts and ends. He's talking about the role of the church, the posture of the church in a pluralistic world. And what does that look like? One uh, commentator, Donald Guthrie, writing about this, says that Paul evidently fears that these turbulent Cretans might too readily implicate the church in political agitation, which could only bring the gospel under suspicion. That may be exactly what's going on. And he goes on to say that the Christians should be ready to do whatever is good in the community in which he lives, always cooperative, provided no question of conscience is involved. Now, that's where it gets tricky because we live in a culture where questions of conscience continue to bubble to the surface. The exception that becomes very clear, some of your minds have already gone to Acts 5 when when Peter is responding as a representative of the disciples and they they were told not to preach or teach about the gospel. Now, an angel had opened the jail door for Peter and friends to go out and preach the gospel. And when an angel opens the door for you, pay attention and listen. And what he did say is, we've heard your, your forbidding words, but we cannot help but preach and teach the gospel. When it comes to the proclamation of the gospel in the land, that's clear. That's a case study of this issue of what submission looks like. And when do you go the other way? He says, we cannot be quiet. We cannot be silent. And the words that he uses is we must obey God rather than man. The challenge in a pluralistic culture that is less oriented to biblical values every day is immense. But that's where we are. That's where God has us in a pluralistic culture that challenges biblical values day by day. And maybe that's why Paul doesn't get any more explicit than what he has said here Because we then have to think, what does it look like to be faithful and to be wise? What does it mean to be honoring to God and to love our neighbors and to be model citizens and avoid anything that looks like, in Guthrie's words, political agitation? We're entering the season, aren't we? (laughs) It has begun. And we're going to come, I'll come back to that in a moment. But, the, but this is a reality before us today. And just in God's timing, what does it look like? What is the posture that the church is to have in that environment? Individual citizens will do what individual citizens should do. But what is the church's posture as we walk through what we might call turbulent times in our land? And keep in mind that the authorities that Paul has in mind when he's instructing these Cretan Christians are no friends of the church. (laughs) They aren't 
insiders, it's a difficult task that he's given them, and our task is no less difficult to take what Paul is saying, to take what God is saying. He's saying our posture in the world in which we live needs to look this way. Model citizens, obedient to the law, paying attention to God's ways and His will, His purposes, not being silent, but being the kind of people that represent and reflect the kind of changes that are going on inside of us. I'll come back to that. When it comes to rulers and authorities, the word is submissive and obedient. And then he comes to another topic that's related. Every good work. When it comes to rulers and authorities, submissive and obedient. When it comes to every good work, ready. (laughs) We are to be a people ready for every good work. That means poised and prepared with our eyes open to what are the good works that God has called us to step into. Once a month, we uh, send a group of people from here to uh, Morning Point to do a worship service. You know what we call that. Loving Franklin's Elderly. Well, that's not all of Franklin's Elderly. (laughs) It's a couple of dozen that we meet with once a month. What about the rest of Franklin's Elderly? What about the rest of Franklin? What are the... What are the good works that are before us that are opportunities to move into real need? Now, good works needs qualifiers. It's not what the world deems good, but what God, who is the fountain of all goodness, would, would lay in front of us. It's, they are good works that lead to human flourishing, that are bringing good to people in need. So this week I spoke with someone who said, you know, God has really tugged on my heart and put in front of me maybe the idea of getting involved in English as a second language classes. Could we do that? Well, there's no reason we couldn't do that. And if that's something that God is placing on your heart and their heart to do more of that, maybe that is a good work that leads to human flourishing that God has put before us. We collect coats for homeless. We've done that. We, we, work toward, we work with and alongside refugees coming alongside. What are, the, what, are the, what are the things, the good works, the every good work, <laughs> to use his language, that God would put in front of us to say, this is what your public life looks like. This is what it looks like to represent Christ in this world, in this culture. John Stott said, it's not enough for Christians to be law-abiding. We're to be public-spirited as well. What is the common good? What are the things? We can't do everything. But what are the things that we could do that are public-spirited, that make Franklin a better place, Williamson County a better place? What is it? What would that look like? Well, that's something of the posture that seems to be in Paul's mind, submissive to authorities, ready for every good work, poised and prepared. 
with eyes open. So that's one. That's verse one. I'm, I'm going to pick it up here, so don't worry. But, <laughs> but a posture in the world includes submission, ready for every good work. It also includes, verse two, kindness of speech. You take all of the, all of the words that you read in verse two, and I'm going to run through them quickly. <clears throat> kindness of speech is a label that you could give to this. Speak evil of no one, uh, he says. That doesn't mean be naive or never speak about evil that you see in the world. It means restrain the natural inclination that we have to say the worst about people. If we don't speak evil, we can address evil. <laughs> but don't say the worst or don't go there first. It's to, it's to address the problems of the world, to call it what it is, and to move toward it. Now, as the national political rhetoric heats up, Will your language do so too? Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. That is being uncontentious without a sword is what that word means. And I can't help but think of Proverbs 12. There is one whose words are like sword thrusts. <laughs> Have you received those? <laughs> Uh, that's what he's cautioning us against and, and moving us away from. Avoid quarreling. Put away the sword. It doesn't require agreement. It doesn't forbid debate. But what is the tenor of your dialogue? How do you, agree, how do you disagree with respect, recognizing the dignity of the person that you oppose? How do we disagree about things that matter? And how do we do so without speaking evil, without quarreling? He says to be gentle. That's a word translated reasonable in Philippians 4. Let your reasonableness be known to, to everyone. To be gentle, to be reasonable, to be calm, to be the person that we need in an emergency or in a crisis. That kind of clear-headed, not muddled, and not off-the-cuff, and not angry speech. We're to deal with the unreasonable person, but when we do, are we going to go in circles and spiral downward? Well, that's what happens. Is that the way to go? Paul says, no. We're to be gentle. We're to show, oh, here it is. How about this one? Show perfect courtesy. Show perfect courtesy, or another translation is show every consideration. I need to consider my opponent. I need to consider those people that differ from me. I need to listen, and I need to respond with kindness and clarity. Clarity is kindness when it comes to this kind of thing. Bringing biblical truth to bear and letting God's Word do its work. But not shouting and not getting angrier by the moment. Kindness of speech. And then finally, in verse 3, humility. Our, our life, our public life in the world is to be marked by kindness of speech and verse 3, humility. That's what I'm taking away from all of these descriptions in verse 3. Remember what we once were, he says, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's simply reminding them of who they were and all that they were. That's who they were. That's who we were. That's all that we were at the core until God shows up. And he's simply trying to say, look, remember as you engage the world, remember your own baggage, your own story, your own plight, 
and all the brokenness of your life that the gospel has now addressed. John Flavel, a 17th century English Puritan, said this, They that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. They that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. That's what Paul seems to be doing. That's our posture in the world. But we're not there. And everything that Paul has given to Titus that's laid in front of us today, that's a high mountain to climb. How do we get from here to there? We're to live in a way that makes Jesus compelling to the watching world. We're to show what the new humanity looks like that's countercultural to the values of Crete or Williamson County. Well, how do we get there? What stands in the way? Notice what does not stand in the way, what Paul doesn't address. He says, he says, he doesn't say that the problem in being able to do that is them, <laughs> meaning the world. It's not the culture. That's not the problem. The problem is with us getting to where we need to get, the posture we are to have, how we are to live lives that are compelling to the watching world. So that when we disagree, people see how we disagree and say, hmm, that's a great way to disagree. I feel respected. I feel heard. And I know where they stand. The problem, we might say, is a problem of the will. We're easily provoked by others, but our will gets, gets pulled into it and fury follows. Fury over the views of others. We don't know how to do it, disagree respectfully or how to challenge falsehoods. Augustine said, as you've heard us say repeatedly, that humanity is curved in on itself. And one of the consequences and the results is alienation from God and the fracturing of human society. The problem of sin, mine and yours, <laughs> that's the result curved in on ourselves, curved away from God, curved away from our neighbors, the fracturing of human society. It's not ours to own alone. It's a broken world. But, but how does our public posture move into that? It could be a problem of our will. It's, it's certainly a problem of our heart. People have said before, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, and that's always the case. When it comes to living well with this kind of posture in the world, how do we get there? How do we be less self-centered? How do we avoid harshness? How do we avoid contention? It could be the problem of the will. It could be the problem of the heart. But the problem that Paul zeroes in on here is the problem of our memory. Verse 1, remind them. Verse 8, insist on these things because people tend to forget. Titus, I insist that you insist on these things. Keep these things before the people. And what are those things? Verses 4 through 7, your assurance of pardon today, your memory verse for this season, and the theme of your life. What things? These things. 
what God has done for you. It may echo Acts chapter, I'm sorry, of Titus chapter 2, where Paul is saying some similar words with a similar effect, making a theological statement to support the practical exhortations he's given. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible gives us exhortation and it roots them in rich, theological, beautiful truths. And that's what he does in verses 4 through 7. When the, loving, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. The goodness. The loving kindness of our God our Savior appeared. You know he's talking about the incarnation there, right? That's when it appeared. When God, the Son, who existed before the foundation of the world, appeared in time and space and history. When God appeared, when Christ appeared, the appearing was not only, as we read, to remove the penalty of sin, it was to liberate our hearts from slavery to various passions. How do we get this into our lives? It's the appearing, that's where it begins. It begins with the appearing of Christ. And as Christ has appeared then, as He will one day appear again, the appearing of Christ, the point of Christ's appearing and His coming was to make God's grace appear to, to the hearts of the hearers. That's what the incarnation is about. To accomplish for us to save us, to use his language, to justify us, that we would be heirs. Are you getting the picture that what Paul has in mind is these are the glorious grand truths that change reality for you? They not merely change your destination and your future. They change your life in this world. And how do we get these things into our lives? by recognizing that Christ has appeared to make the grace of God appear before you. And then he goes on to say, with the washing of rebirth, Christ appears. And then there's the washing of rebirth. Now that may be referring to baptism. It probably is. But what it's referring, pointing to is the washing of rebirth what it is that rep baptism represents and points to. It's that regeneration. It's that new heart that comes to us through the gospel. The regeneration of the human heart, John 3, no one can see the kingdom of God until he is born from above. Ezekiel says, I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's the washing of rebirth. Ezekiel also attaches sprinkling to his uh, pronouncement. Curiously and helpfully. There's the washing of rebirth. That's how we get from where we have been to where Paul wants us in the culture, in the world, our public lives. It begins with the appearing of Christ, His grace becoming vivid and present before you. The washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit is where He goes next. By God, by His Spirit, you see, sets revolutionary changes in motion when the disobedient come to faith. 
That's where the, the revolution begins. I have a friend who was flying on an airplane once, and he did campus ministry, and, uh, and the guy next to him said, what do you do for a living? He said, uh, I'm a revolutionary. Well, that got the... I don't know if you can say that these days on the airplane, but <laughs> this was long ago. I'm a revolutionary. And then he, he said, I introduced students to Jesus Christ, and then I watched the revolution. Has that happened to you? Has that revolution begun in you? The renewal of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. You're free from that. There's something new. You're enabled by the Spirit of Christ. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. How do we get this into our lives? The work of the Spirit, the rebirth, the abiding in Christ, and then we use biblical truth on our hearts. Back to that saying, this saying is trustworthy. That, sh that shows up five times. They're all in the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, where Paul is writing to these young pastors and he's saying, this saying is trustworthy. Build on this. Remind them of this. Insist on this. Tell yourself, this is how you get it into your life. You become the person who insists on these things for yourself. <laughs> Paul's reminding a pastor, but you take it. We take it. Insist on these things. Make these things not just your assurance of pardon today, not just your memory verse for the season, but the theme of your life. Insist on these things. Plant them deep. Na screw them down <laughs> into your life that these things are true and lovely and beautiful. And let the words, when the kindness and loving kindness and goodness of God appeared, those things begin to shake loose the things in my life that need to be shaken, the attitudes that need to be dissolved, and, the, and it forms the posture that needs to be formed it's right to say and to simply understand that hearing the gospel, applying it to your own life, is the way that these things take shape. Standing in awe of what God has done for us will do more to transform our hearts than piling up good works in a subtle attempt to please God. There is a good work. We've been set apart for good works. We move into those. We ask, what might we do? But we do so from a heart of faith because of another good work. The good work of the one and the true and the lovely bride of Christ, uh, Christ who makes us his bride. That's his good work upon which we stand. Tim Chester says, the reality is that we will never understand the wonderful kindness and love of God until, you ready? We will never understand the wonderful kindness and love of God until we face the reality of what we are with, without Him, what we are like without Him. And I would go on to say we will never see the call for changes in our life until we understand both the wonderful kindness and love of God and the reality of what we 
are like without him. When we see those, the change and the revolution is on. That we step into the, the call of God upon our lives to be the kind of people that live in the world in such a way that people begin to see a new humanity, a new way, shaped by Christ, evidenced by the gospel. You see, the point of Christ's coming was to make God's grace appear to the hearts of hearers. So here's my last question for you. Has God's grace appeared to you? Has it appeared? And do you see the loveliness and the compellingness and the captivatingness, is that a word, of the beauty of the gospel? Be captivated by the one whose goodness and kindness appeared and appears. It appears through his word, through his promises made to you. Pray with me. Father, would you do that work in us? Would you make vivid before our eyes the truth and the beauty and the loveliness of Christ to begin to consider more and more who we are like without you that we might see and understand the wonderful kindness and love of God that is ours through the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.